The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, whatever happened to the great British corporation? After a grim few years for the likes of BP and Cadbury, is it time we found other models for our businesses? Plus, just what is President Obama doing to his economic advisers? Larry Summers becomes the third economist being spat out of the White House inner circle. What does this say about Obama's handling of the economic crisis? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio this week, Robert Johnson from the Institute for New Economic Thinking based in New York. The Guardian's economics correspondent, Phil Inman, is here. And we're joined by Andrew Sims, Policy Director of the New Economics Foundation and author of a new book, Eminent Corporations. Welcome to you all. So what's the future of the company? It's been a disastrous time for corporations of all sorts, from the bankruptcies of Enron and Worldcom to trouble at BP and Cadbury in the UK. The American car maker General Motors, once the biggest vehicle producer in the world, has filed for bankruptcy protection in New York. The US government will take a majority... There's more uncertainty for workers at Jaguar Land Rover. The car giant is shutting one of its plants in the Midlands. The firm is going to decide next year which one it will close. It's not right for the factory, for the area, for the residents or for the whole economy. But let me be clear. BP is responsible for this leak. BP will be paying the bill. But as President of the United States, I'm going to spare no effort to respond to this crisis for as long as it continues. Calling disregard for the Gulf Coast and its inhabitants is without question one of the most shameful acts by a corporation in American history. Andrew Sims, in your new book, Eminent Corporations, you tell us that the great British companies great no more. What happened? The seeds of the downfall of many of the modern great British corporations can actually go right back to the, the first corporation of them all, if you like, the, the British East India Company. And when you look at its arc over really a couple of hundred years or almost, you can see the same fault lines which are obvious in the modern corporation. And that is the tendency towards the monopoly control of the market, the speculative temptations of investors and shareholders, and the lack of automatic remedy for corporate abuse. And if you come right up to date to the foundations of the current economic crisis that we're, that we're living through, it's been pointed out that in the offices of places like Lehman Brothers and, and Bear Stearns were signs saying, let's make nothing but money. And they ended up destroying more value than they ever created. A particular kind of finance-driven capitalism took root, the clearest embodiment being our very own sort of Alan Greenspan, sitting, if you like, as the godfather of finance-driven economic globalisation, who interestingly gave his own very particular mea culpa a couple of years ago to the to the Senate committee when he astonishingly came out with the um, admission that he discovered a flaw in the model that he thought determined how the world works. Now, when you've been effectively running the global economy for a couple of decades, that, that's, that's quite a big whoops. And I think therein lies the seed of the downfall. Give us a specific example. Perhaps one of the saddest examples we can talk about, because it's such a household name, is in the case of Cadbury's. Right. Now, Cadbury's, the irony goes layer upon layer with Cadbury's, and that uh, they started out very explicitly as a morally driven Quaker initiative. The products were a part of a plan to wean people off alcohol. These were very morally driven people, and to provide people with working environments which were healthy and clean, wherein the workforce had a 
stake in the in the running of the company. And then by the time you get to the kind of the, the, the 1970s, it's become much more all about profit. And then you come bang up to date with the staggering irony that one of the great flagships, one of the great brand names of, of British business ends up being bought out by an American essentially junk food concern financed by a nationalised British bank, RBS. And that's almost the sort of denouement. Hang on, what's your problem with that? Because all the I've problem- seen all hang on, all mm. I've seen there is a change of ownership and the company that's gone global. That's a great British success story, I think, isn't it? Does it matter that it's owned by an American or not? I think it matters for a number of reasons. It matters because you've been faced with a workforce in Britain that had the indignity of having to train overseas workers who were going to be replacing them. You had it in a sense that the direction of the company has corroded it from within, and it's drifted so far from its original mission to be effectively absorbed in a type of business now, which is delivering, apart from anything else, huge health bills to the National Health Service, as people have diets which are dominated by, you know, rich in sugar, rich in fat, etc., etc., etc. You can't blame neoliberalism on chocolate, though, can you? What you can do is see that there was once a form of business that saw it had lines of responsibility that ran to its local workforce, that ran to its local community, that saw how it operated as part of a wider business ecosystem, reduced to the pursuit of a single overarching goal. Not a triple bottom line of environmental, economic and social responsibility, but a single one-eyed pursuit of profit. Rob, before you began your work with INET, you were a big hitting fund manager with Soros Fund Management. And what Andy's just said there is that you're partly responsible for the corruption of our greatest companies. How do you respond to that? It, it wasn't a personal allegation. <laughs> well, you and your, you and your, yeah, you and your well, Rontier I, class. As, as part of the group that uh, doused the British pound in 1992, I think I better get in my cab and go home. Don't disclose the whereabouts of this studio. Uh, But seriously, do you think Andrew's got a point or do you think a lot of what he's saying is a bit too far away from how business should be run? I think he's got a point and where I've come down is that, well, first of all, in that history that he talked about, limited liability corporations were actually a gift conferred upon the stockholders and the owners by society, the notion of limited liability was to allow them to build things which would support the productivity of everyone. Where I think things within the corporation have gotten off course as they've gotten larger and larger, and this is very uh, powerful in the United States where money and politics is so important, is they've started making their own rules for themselves and ra- rather than being responsive to society. But within the corporation, when he talks about you know, kind of the single-minded pursuit of money and profit, shareholder value, and the way things are either added together or stripped apart, there is a very, very clear, what you might call market imperfection. There's side effects, there's spillovers that come from management. They have an awful lot of discretion, what they call in economics the principal agent mm-hmm. problem. The many stockholders... And many stakeholders can't control the management. And if you look, for instance, this year's Schumpeter Prize was given to Bill Lazonic's book called Sustainable Prosperity for a New Economy, question mark. In that book, he talks all about how the information and communications technology firms, the brand names HP, mm-hmm. IBM, and, and beyond, they all hired all these scientists. And then when the scientists discovered things, they essentially sought to cut their pensions and fire them 
and used the free cash flow that they had from the people who did the innovation to buy back stock to support the bonuses through stock options that they had issued themselves. So hang on. So the managements are out of control. It sounds from from that example, it sounds like you're saying as a former big investor that actually investors have been given too much power over corporations. The managers have been given too much power because relative they're tr- because to they're diffuse trying to- stockholders. And right. what that has inspired is both leverage buyouts where a big debt holder or big concentrations of stock holding come back, what you might say, to try to discipline the management. So you end up having a, a fight among the dinosaurs, but little people are kind of left on the side. And, and confidence in these market systems has eroded tremendously. And as a former investor, do you think there is scope for the kind of moral dimension in running companies, Andrew suggested there? I think that there is an enormous breakdown, or say a conflict that leads to a breakdown in morality that relates to globalization. In essence, the scope of the market is much larger than the domain of the country in question. So an executive is both a citizen of the country and in charge of shareholder value, as they describe it, rather than a more wholesome or organic view. So we have a breakdown where the top management of large corporations in the United States, for instance, now depends upon Indian, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Brazilian labor. He doesn't care about health care benefits or education of the American workforce. I think it's very interesting in the if you look just over the last sort of decade, decade and a half, that one of the characteristics of financial deregulation obviously was the demutualization mm-hmm. of the lot of the building societies. And these were many of the same lenders who got caught up in that sort of furnace of speculation that led to the crash. And off the back of that, one of the interesting things, if you look at the the, the British corporate marketplace today, that some of the firms which have been most resilient in the face of the recession have been the remaining mutuals, the John Lewis's, the co-op banks Mm. of this world. Mm. So there's an argument there in which a, a broader set of interests motivating a company actually relates to real economic stability. Philip, the problem with that argument we just heard from Andrew is that once you've gone through a process of demutualization, it's very hard to find your way back. Once you're PLC, it's very hard to turn yourself back into John Lewis. It's very hard. How do you give people something and don't charge them for it? But you can't charge them for it because they haven't got the money to pay for it. You've just got to gift them the company in the sense of remutualizing it. And that's something, obviously, that People have talked about remutualising, and we haven't seen any real concrete plans for it on the table to actually sort of vote on an election or something. Just coming back to one of the previous points about does it need to be a British company, I think one of the things that we've seen in the crash is that if they're not a British company, they run away. And the only ones you've got left to manage as a government are the ones that are British. So if we didn't have any banks, if we'd let all the banks be bought by Chinese-American companies, then they would have all scarpered and we'd have had no banks whatsoever really to insist on lending, to insist on being uh, lenient on repossessions. You've got to remember that there's a huge amount of restraint and all those sorts of areas. One of the other interesting points I think is in John Kay's book, Obliquity, where the pursuit of money nearly always leads you to fall down and trip over. All the companies that he looks at as being successful are ones that want to be the best at what they're doing. And it's not the pursuit of 
pure cash that does it, you know. So they want to be the best supermarket, the best restaurant, the best whatever it is, you know. The way that British managers and British investors have tended to act has often been heavily influenced by what they see over the other side of the Atlantic. And Britain has turned more and more into kind of a mini-me economy of, of the US. Do you think a book like Eminent Corporations could be written in America? Because you've got bigger corporations, you've yeah, got, you've got more greedy examples. You would change the subjects, but the same type of themes would be quite resonant in the United States. But is there the same sense of popular resentment at big companies in America as, as yes. Andrew's pick, picked Absolutely. up here? Absolutely. Uh, one of the most interesting things in politics is the idea that you don't talk about the things that really matter. And when you look at pollsters, many of whom have lots of corporate clients, they never ask what do people think of corporations. When they do, they find out that 85% of Americans think the corporations have too much power. Okay, well, Andrew Simms' book, co-written with David Boyle, Eminent Corporations, The Rise and Fall of the Great British Corporation, is published by Constable. The chief architect of President Obama's economic policy, Larry Summers, announced last week that he'd be leaving the administration at the end of this year, just two years after he'd quit Harvard to take on the job. This comes after the departures of the president's budget director, Peter Orzag, and his chief economic forecaster, Christy Romer. US voters are expressing their deep dissatisfaction with Obama's handling of the economy. Robert Johnson, you've got the inside story on this. What's, what's going on? Well, first of all, we're approaching a midterm election in November, and it looks as if the uh, Republican Party, the auto power party, the opposition, will pick up a great deal of strength, which will then hamstring politics for the next two years. So many of these people may have left because they can see over the hill that you're going to have gridlock in the United States, and they won't be able to accomplish very much. In other instances, uh, it may b relate to Obama being somewhat unpopular and feeling like he needs to change the guard. And probably Larry Summers is a symbol as the leader of the economics team that change is about to come. The, how would I say? The change you can believe in from his 2008 campaign did not materialize to the satisfaction of the public. So are you saying these people were pushed or did they jump? I think it's a little bit of both. I think Orzag was probably frustrated. I think that Christina Romer jumped. I mean, she was somewhat frustrated perhaps with Summers. And I think that Larry Summers himself can see the handwriting on the wall, that he's not going to make much future progress. He is blamed for the stimulus program being too small by the progressives and for too big a government by the conservatives. He's, he's not in a winning position on either, uh, on either side. And, and you've hinted it there, but beyond the politics, is, is there a serious policy difference between Obama and these three people? Uh, no, I think very subtle differences between them except perhaps that Obama is inherently quite cautious as an individual. And he is uh, a very intelligent man, but not particularly well-versed in economics. And so I think some of them were a little bit frustrated that he wasn't more emboldened. The analogy to Franklin Roosevelt did not materialize in this crisis, and now the public is quite upset with nearly 10% unemployment. So where does this leave Obama's economic policy then? It's kind of in tatters, I would say. What happens next? What happens next is after the uh, right, the Republican Party, does uh, make some progress in November, it'll be hard to get things done. You know, we're always talking about, is there more stimulus? Does stimulus work and all? But that's just kind of shrapnel. The real debate is how big should the state be in the American economy? And the right would take 
a prolonged recession or depression in order to undo the fabric of Franklin Roosevelt. And the left thinks they ought to go right back to full employment and show that the government can make a difference. We're going to struggle over that philosophical argument over the next two years. One of the problems with that argument, as you've just laid it out, is that the right actually have got serious big-hitting politicians to make that argument for them, whereas the left and the people who would call for big stimulus or for a bigger state, they tend to be writing columns for the New York Times and not actually in power at all. That's in large part because there's tremendous money in politics. So whether you're appealing to the voters in the last two months before an election, you've got to appeal to the funders which is essentially the wealthiest 2 to 3% of Americans, which is large corporate executives, large financiers, and a few people with inherited wealth. They tend to be more conservative. Philip, um, what Robert's just described there is a right that's used an economic crisis as a battering ram to smash down the size of the state. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> yeah, we've obviously seen it here before. and uh, seeing you know, it now. And we're seeing it now, yes. Uh, Thatcher Mark II. Um, Thatcher writ large, um, you know, all kinds of slogans. I think that what we're seeing here is very much the same thing, you know, which is why we had such a big Tea Party delegation come over to London a couple of weeks ago and start to really dig a bit deeper into the English psyche to, to worry them about big state and what that means and the fact that it's going to hold you back it's not the springboard for growth it's the barrier it's the cloak that shrouds everything and keeps everything down so I think yes we are seeing that here and we are going to see the same kind of wrestling match. Andrew I want you to take off the uh, baseball cap of book authorship for a moment and put on the flat cap of the new economics foundation which your policy director one of the things that Neff has tried to do and I think has done some really interesting work is to think about a different way of relating state to the economy which isn't just about government spending but is a bit more about civic action are you a bit frustrated that kind of this idea of a big society or a more sort of engaged society has been kind of monstered by the right i think what's interesting the current government in britain has been using the language of the big society has created both opportunities and problems for us. It's created opportunities in the sense that people are finally seeing that there is what we refer to as the core economy. This is the kind of the the thing which actually makes life tick over. It's the family, it's the community, it's all the things which go unmeasured, unremarked and very often cannibalised by the broader economy. And, And at least by having a debate about a big society, it acknowledges a large other part of what makes things work that needs proper recognition. Now, the the doubt is in the current debate that it's also perhaps for the right a convenient excuse for the downsizing of the state and for the removal of the necessary sort of safety nets. But we do think that there is a there is a new agenda which can sit and, and appeal equally to both left and right because it is about empowerment and it is about one of the key concepts at the heart of what makes our idea of a new economy tick which is greater reciprocity and it's how do you get round the fact that for example in public service provision you don't want people to be simply meek recipients of a of a beneficial state you want them to be active citizens when you start to look at how you can give things back to which actually lowers the cost of the running of services as well there are some opportunities there One of the things I wanted to ask, actually, from a British perspective, looking at what Obama's been doing, is that the noises, at least, coming from Obama about banking re-regulation seem to have been much stronger 
in the US than here. And we have a couple of commissions going, a couple of inquiries going, but by and large, the banks have been left unscathed in the UK. I'm fascinated to know how Obama's getting on with the banking re-regulation agenda, because he said some pretty strong things. Well, you remember Teddy Roosevelt used to say, walk softly and carry a big stick. Well, Obama's talking loudly and he can't find a stick. (laughs) Obama has, in my opinion, largely failed in financial reform. He has a cosmetic approach. Once again, political fundraising plays a role. The Wall Street firms are the absolute top, organized by place of work, funding organizations in American politics. So we shouldn't expect to see a return of Glass-Steagall, for example? No. You know, when when, uh, Edward Kennedy died, and in Massachusetts, a Democratic stronghold, they lost his seat to Scott Brown, the Republican, in January uh, mid-election. Obama immediately jumps out on stage with Paul Volcker and talks about being tough on finance and so forth. And these guys were paying bonuses on the back of bailouts, and the public was demoralized. When you looked at the exit polls, why the Democrat Coakley lost to Brown, it was all about people being furious about the bailouts and the bonuses. So as soon as that theater is done, they go back into negotiating the bill. And in the final act of the U.S. financial reform bill, it was Scott Brown who stood up on behalf of a company called State Street Bank of Boston mm. from his home state mm. and actually gutted the Volcker rule, so which was that, a Glass-Steagall-like separation. Why is it that people like the, the, the Tea Party activists who are sort of up in arms about the big state, the big government, but not about the big banks and big finance? Oh, they are up in, up in arms. If you, I, I want to so be fair. Be pressure for reform I, I want to be there. very fair to the Tea Party members. These are angry people. And when you look at the polls... These are people who don't want to cut Social Security, don't want to cut Medicare, think the bank bailouts were wildly unfair. The bank bailouts are what you might call a marker for the anger that these people feel. They're outraged. There is a lot of polling now in the United States that I'm able to observe. And what the polling says is we think money is going to large corporations. We think money is going to the rich and powerful. We think money is going to the big financial institutions. It's not helping the middle class. It's not helping the poor. So if you're going to make my child's tax burden go up and you're just going to back the wealthy and the powerful, we'd rather cut you off. Why is Obama not tapping into that? Because he needs the money. Robert, two years after he took over, is it now time to say that Obama's been a flop? I would say... People have an empathy for Obama. They see him as a well-intentioned man who can't overcome all of the power and the corruption in the system rather than a man who is himself corrupt. And so there's still some sympathy for him. But what is eroding that sympathy is he seems to continually move to the right and affirm the people who are his opponents or pretend that he's presiding over some kind of bipartisan action where the opposition votes against him. Everyone votes against him on everything, on health care, on financial reform, and so forth. The Republicans, in large part, took a lot of money in weakening financial reform, and then at the end, they voted against it and said, see, the Democrats are the, in the pocket of Wall Street. So it's what, a very ugly game. So what do we have for the White House for the next couple of years, a lamed-up president? You have a president who will be struggling and probably himself moving to the right in response to his losses in the midterm election. And finally, we've just got time for another bit of myth debunking from the Cambridge economist Harjun Chang. He's reading from his book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. Greater macroeconomic stability has not made the world economy more stable. 
Between June 1922 and November 1923, prices in Germany rose by something like 160 billion times. Many people believe that this experience of hyperinflation laid the grounds for the rise of the Nazis by discrediting the liberal institutions of the Weimar Republic. Some countries actually had it worse. At the height of the Hungarian inflation in 1946, prices doubled every 15 hours, whereas it doubled only every four days in 1923 Germany. Hyperinflation of this kind should be avoided at all costs as they turn prices into meaningless noises and undermine the very foundation of capitalism. However, there's a big logical leap between this sensible proposition and one of the key doctrines of free market economics today, namely that very low inflation, say in the region of 1-3%, to is a prerequisite for economic prosperity. The argument is that people need a stable environment if they are going to commit their resources to long-term investment projects which are necessary for economic growth. The argument makes logical sense, but there is actually no evidence that we need very low inflation in order to motivate investors. In the 1960s and 70s, South Korea and Brazil used to be two of the fastest growing economies in the world, despite having inflation rates around 20% and 40% respectively. In contrast, during the last two or three decades, in many countries, attempts to bring inflation down to very low levels have reduced rather than increased investment and growth by cutting demands and making business loans expensive. Even worse, low inflation has not even led to greater economic stability. Free market policies may increase price stability, but it has also made financial crises more frequent and jobs more insecure resulting in greater overall economic instability. Our obsession with inflation should end. Inflation is not as dangerous as it is often made out to be, and policies aimed at reducing it to very low levels have reduced rather than increased investment, growth, and economic stability. Ha Jin Chang there. And that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Philip Inman, Robert Johnson, and Andrew Sims. The producer was Ian Chambers. My name's Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.